couple of weeks ago, we began a, a new series of sermons focusing on the cross of Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at the centrality of the cross. We saw that uh, the cross is at the heart of the gospel. That without the cross, there is no gospel. For the gospel is not simply good news or not simply good advice about what we must do to reconcile ourselves to God. But it is, in fact, good news of what has been done to reconcile us to God. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ for us to accomplish our salvation. Then last Sunday, we saw the necessity of the cross. We saw why Jesus had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. We saw why God couldn't just forgive. We saw that while God is a God rich in mercy, He is a God who can by no means clear the guilty. He is a God who demands that that sin be hated and punished. And therefore, Christ had to drink the cup of His wrath upon the cross that we might know the cup Of his blessing. This morning, we are going to turn our attention to the accomplishment of the cross. If the gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, what is that? What is it that he has actually accomplished? What is it that he has actually done? And we are going to spend three weeks answering that question because we are going to answer it from three different perspectives. Our catechism teaches us that his work of redemption, that in his work of redemption, Christ executes three offices. That is, that is, when he comes as our redeemer, he comes first as a prophet. He comes second as a priest and he comes third as a king. And we are going to take one week to consider what Christ does in each of these roles as he fulfills each of these roles. Offices and how he fulfills each of these offices in and through and upon his cross. So this morning we begin with Christ as prophet. A prophet is is fundamentally one who who speaks for God, one who makes God and his will known to his people. In other words, a, a prophet is fundamentally an instrument of revelation. And this morning we will see that the cross of Christ reveals God like nothing else. In the cross, we see the righteousness, the love, and the wisdom of our God on full display. And in seeing these, we are transformed. And in seeing His righteousness, in seeing His love, in seeing His wisdom, we Become what God intends us to be. So let us pray and ask God for eyes to see what He intends us to see this morning in the the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with, uh, pray with me. Father God, we pray that You would be with us now as we open Your Word. We pray that You would give us eyes to see Your truth, that that truth might transform us that that truth might empower us to live as becomes your disciples. Father, we pray for this blessing even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. 
Psalm 73. Because the first thing that we see in the cross of Christ is the righteousness of God. Ever since man uh, fell into sin, people have been wrestling with the seeming injustice of God's providence, with the, with the seeming injustice of this world that we say is ruled by Him. Why do wicked, why do the wicked so often prosper? And why do the righteous so often suffer? This is the question that Asaph is struggling with as he writes this psalm. So look with me at Psalm 73. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I may tell, that I may tell of all your works. That is the reading of God's Word. Notice where Asaph begins. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a statement of what Asaph knows to be true. This, this is what Asaph knows to be orthodox truth. That God is good to His people. That God does good for those who 
love him. He knows this to be true. But in the very next phrase, we see that he is having a hard time believing what he knows to be true. He writes, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And notice what it is that had caused him to nearly slip. We see it there in verses 3 through 16. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He sees the the wicked at ease. He he sees the wicked, wicked prospering. And he begins to doubt the goodness of God. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Maybe not the description that we would prefer today, but that in that day, that was a good thing. It was a sign that you had enough to eat, that you had more than enough to eat. He says, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They, he talks about how they, they scoff at, at others, how they, they, they scoff at those who fear the Lord because they say, how does the Lord know? They have no troubles in this life, Asaph says. And because he saw this prosperity of the wicked, because he he saw them doing well, his feet had almost slipped. Asaph is struggling with the seeming unrighteousness of God's providence. He is a righteous man. He has kept his hands clean, but his life has been full of hardship. He says he has been stricken. He has been rebuked every morning. Yet when he looks around, he sees many wicked men at ease. How can this be? How can God allow such an unjust state of affairs? This is a question that all of us have struggled with at one time or another. It is a question that hits close to home for each and every one of us. We, we know the injustice of life in this world. We know that bad things happen to good people and, and bad people prosper. And the authors of Scripture seem to understand that this is indeed a, a common problem, for this is not the only place that it comes up. It, it comes up repeatedly throughout uh, the wisdom literature. It comes up especially in the the book of Job. The the whole book of Job is wrestling with this question of how could righteous Job suffer in the ways that he has? How could God allow this to happen? Well, the answer to the problem that the Scriptures put forth again and again is the coming judgment of God. We see it here in Psalm 73, beginning at verse 16. Notice what he says. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. He says, I was struggling to understand how God could could allow such an unjust state of affairs. And I was I was weary from trying to figure it out. I, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, he says. But then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then what? Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. What is it that Asaph remembers when he enters into the sanctuary of God? He remembers that God is a God who will one day judge the wicked. Their judgment is not yet, but it is coming. Their judgment is Sure, the day has been set when God will call to account. When all men will be held accountable for what they have done. This is 
what sets Asaph straight. This is what allows him to uh, make sense of the seeming injustice of God's providence. And it's an answer that we see spelled out throughout Scripture. Through, throughout Scripture, we see uh, God's prophets and God's apostles again and again pointing to the coming judgment of God. For example, in Acts 17, when, when Paul is, is speaking to the Athenian philosophers, he's, <coughs> he says that God has appointed a time in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He has appointed a time when he will no longer overlook their ignorant rebellion, but that he will call them to account. And throughout his letters, he, he refers to this coming judgment. We see it in 1 Thessalonians when he says that the Thessalonians have, have turned from idols to the true and living God and have, have escaped the coming wrath. He says it in, in Romans chapter 2 when he speaks of that day that is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He calls it a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Similarly, Peter tells us in his first or in his second letter that the day of judgment has not has been delayed not because it is not coming, not because it's 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 a phantom, not because it's it's some a figment of our imagination, but rather that day has been delayed because God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but the day of judgment is coming, he says. It will surely come. And so Scripture answers our concerns about God's justice by assuring us that the day is coming when all wrongs will be made right, when all injustices will be redressed, when all evil will be repaid in full. And the reason that God has not done it yet is not because He is slow, as some count slowness, Peter says. It's not because He is indifferent. It's not because He doesn't care. It's not because He is unjust. It is because He is But his patience will not last forever. He is slow to anger, but his anger will be poured out on that day that he has appointed. The day is coming when all wrongs will be made right. But how do we know? How do we know for certain that God will do this? How do we know that He will put all wrongs right? How do we know that He will repay evil? How do we know that He will turn things right side up again? Paul tells us that we know. We know that God is righteous. We know that God will do right when we look at the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We looked at these verses last week, so I don't want to repeat everything we said then, but I I want us to see these verses again. Because here Paul says that it is in the cross that we see the righteousness of God demonstrated. Paul begins at verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul has just been saying in the first two and a half chapters of Romans that we are, we are all sinners, that, that we are all worthy of condemnation, that we are all uh, by nature objects of His wrath. But he says, but now a righteousness has been revealed, a righteousness that we can possess, a righteousness that we can have, not through works, not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
He says, for all, uh, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying? Paul says, listen, God's righteousness, God's justice was called into question. Why? Because he had left former sins unpunished. Because the wicked were prospering. Because the wicked were, were doing well. Because they were not receiving what was coming from them. And all the while, the, the righteous seemed to be suffering instead of them. God's righteousness, God's justice had been called into question. But then, God did something to demonstrate His righteousness. God did something to show His righteousness to the world. And what is it that He did? He put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice for sin. The cross shows God's absolute unwillingness to leave sin unpunished. As we saw last week, God's wrath is necessarily provoked by evil. He cannot respond to evil any other way. And once He has been provoked, once His wrath has been kindled, it burns. And it burns so as to consume. It burns as to destroy all that is evil. All that is Wicked. And once it is burning, once his wrath has been kindled, once it has been provoked, it must be spent. It must be poured out. It will never cease otherwise. And the cross shows us this. The cross shows us that God's wrath burns against evil and that that burning wrath must consume. It must be poured out. The cross is the assurance that God's wrath against evil will prevail. That God's wrath against evil will stand. That it will consume that which is its object. And this assurance of God's wrath against evil is good news. It is good that God hates evil. It is good that He is going to deal with it. It is good that He is going to consume it and to destroy it because it it guarantees the, the purity of our inheritance. In First Peter, uh, uh, Peter tells us of the inheritance that, has, that is ours through uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He refers to it as an inheritance that is, uh, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Well, the only reason that we have such an inheritance, the only reason that we have an inheritance that is undefiled, that has unfading glory, that is imperishable, is because we have a God who hates sin and hates evil. And so God's wrath against evil, it is good news. But as you've heard me say before, it is also very bad news. As we read in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God treats us as our sins deserve, we are in deep trouble. If the impartial judge of the universe is going to judge us according to our works, then we are utterly without hope. And I am convinced that that hopelessness 
is something we are supposed to feel. That hopelessness is supposed to be our response to the righteousness of God. This is why Paul goes on to say in in Romans chapter 3, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded. Why? It is excluded because there is nothing that we can do to secure our own salvation. There is nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. There is nothing that we can do to atone for our sins. And everyone needs to feel this hopelessness. Everyone needs to feel their complete inability. So let me ask you, have you felt it? Do you know what it is to be hopeless before a righteous God? Do you know what it is to feel utterly helpless before the impartial judge of all the world? You need to feel that. You need to know that there's nothing I can do. Lord, I don't even have the right to ask for another chance. I don't even have have the right to, to ask For anything, I deserve only your condemnation. The cross shows us God's absolute unwillingness to leave evil unpunished. And in showing us God's righteousness in this way, it ought to leave us hopeless. But of course, the hopelessness is not absolute. The hopelessness is not complete For the cross is not only a demonstration of God's righteousness, it is also a demonstration of His love. We see this in Romans 3 when Paul speaks about the redemption that is ours. When he speaks about the justification that is ours through Jesus Christ. But we see it maybe all the more clearly in Romans chapter 5. Just turn over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Here Paul says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul describes us as weak. He describes us as ungodly. He describes us as sinners. He describes us as enemies. That is, that is, we were weak. We were without the ability to, to serve God. We were ungodly. That is, we were without the desire to serve God. We were hostile towards Him. We were sinners. That is, we were prone to doing our own thing, to going our own way. We were God's enemies. Hating the fact that He was God and we were not. This is quite a portrait But it's a portrait in which we must see ourselves. Because it is only when we see ourselves in this portrait that we are ready to hear the good news of what Paul says next. Because the very next thing that he says is, but at the same time, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, at the very same time, God put forth His Son, Jesus Christ. 
as the sacrifice for our sin. He put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place that we might be reconciled to Him. And Paul says this is the ultimate demonstration of His love. We see God's love for us in this, that while we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. John says something very similar in his letters. Turn with me over to uh, 1 John to the first letter of John in chapter 3, verse 16, we read these words. We read, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. By this we know what love is, that He laid down His life for us. We see it again in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And each of us who has even begun to comprehend the significance of the cross understands the, the impact that this has upon us. John is going to go on to say that because God has loved us in this way, we will respond to Him with love. We respond to the One who loves us by loving Him. We don't love God first and then He loves us. He loves us. He pursues us while we are His enemies. He pursues us while we are weak. He pursues us while we are ungodly sinners. And because He loves us in this way, He draws us to love Him. We may not be able to explain exactly why it works that way or how it works, but we know it when we feel it. God's love for us produces love for Him. But throughout church history, there have been some who have seen this power, this power in this cross, this power in the cross to to turn our hearts, this power in the cross to soften stiff necks, this this power in the cross to to draw love out of those who were once God's enemies. And they have reduced the achievement of the cross to only this. They have said that, that this power for transformation is all that the cross accomplishes. John Stott describes this way of thinking in these words. He says, The cross remains such an evident display and demonstration of God's love that... <coughs> But several theologians in different eras of church history have tried to find its atoning value here. To them, the power of the cross lies not in any objective sin-bearing transaction, but in its subjective inspiration. Not in its legal efficacy of changing our status before God, but in its moral influence, changing our attitudes and our actions towards God. Maybe the most famous theologian who uh, uh, stood by this view uh, was Peter Abelard. And Abelard believed that all that was necessary for God to forgive sinners was that they truly repent. All that is necessary, if you're going to be forgiven by God, Abelard part, was that you repent. But Abelard understood that we are not inclined to repent. We are hard-hearted. We are stiff-necked. And, and therefore, We do not naturally repent. And so what is necessary, according to Abelard, is not any atoning sacrifice, but a demonstration of God's love that can soften our hearts. A demonstration of God's love that can can draw love and repentance out of us. And according to Abelard, this is what the cross accomplishes. But as we've seen, this this is not a sufficient view of the cross. This, this This doesn't do justice to the Bible's teaching regarding God's wrath. 
more than repentance is, is necessary for God to forgive sinners. God's wrath must be satisfied. God's wrath must be poured out. The evil must be consumed. He can by no means clear the guilty. And what's more, this view doesn't even really make sense if God doesn't have wrath towards sin. What, what is the demonstration of love if, if there's no price to be paid? And therefore, Orthodox theologians throughout church history have rejected this moral influence view of the atonement. They have said this is not an adequate understanding. This is not an adequate view. But I want you to hear this morning that simply because it is not a complete view doesn't mean that we ought to reject it outright, that we ought to reject it totally. I want you to hear this morning that the cross does have a moral influence upon sinners. The cross does draw us to repentance. The cross does elicit love. We will talk more about the, the accomplishment of the cross and, and the fact that, he, that in the cross Christ acts not only as a, as a prophet, but also as a priest and as a king. But this morning I want you to see that the cross, while it is certainly more than a moral influence, it is not less. The cross ought to move us. It ought to soften hard hearts. God's love for us ought to move us to love Him. Jesus spoke of a woman who loved much because she had been forgiven much. And that ought to be true of every one of us. So again, let me ask you, is it true of you? Do you love much because you've been forgiven much? Does the cross motivate you to glorify God in all that you do? Does it motivate you to, to make Him preeminent in all things? Does it, does it motivate you to live to the praise of His glory? It should. If you are this morning struggling with motivation in your Christian life, struggling with the desire to honor Him, struggling with the temptation to pursue the, the pleasures of sin, but I want to suggest to you that you will find motivation in the cross. And this display of God's kindness. Paul says in Romans 2, Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance? It is here that our hearts are softened. It is here that, that we find true repentance. It is here that we are transformed. The cross does more than this, but it certainly doesn't do less. In the cross, we see the wisdom of God, and we see the, the love of God on full display. And seeing the love of God, we are transformed. And so, the cross shows us God's righteousness. It, it shows us God's love and in showing us both at the same time, it shows us God's wisdom. Remember Romans 3.26, that, that text that we, we looked at last week. It says that God did this, that He might be both just and the justifier. When, God, when Paul stops to reflect on this mystery, this, this wonder of God's love for us in Christ, he erupts in this doxology in, in Romans 11. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The cross shows us God's wisdom. You see, we believe that God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love Him. We, we believe that he is, he is always able to, to work things for His glory and our good. 
But we don't always understand how that is possible. How can some of the stuff that we experience in this life be redeemed? How how can it be redeemed for His glory and our good? It is beyond our comprehension. It is is beyond our figuring out. That's what Paul means when he says how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. It is beyond our comprehension. But the cross shows us that God can be trusted even when we don't understand. Maybe especially when we don't understand. We can't always see it, but we can believe it because we see the cross of Christ. The cross shows us God's infinite ability to work things together for our good, to to preserve His righteousness and His mercy simultaneously, to bring them both together, that His glory might resound and that our good might be accomplished. And if we're looking at the cross, we are able to rest in His wisdom. We are able to rest in His good providence. We are able to trust that whatever we experience in this life, it is working for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comprehension, that is beyond all comparing. That is what the cross assures us. The cross shows us His righteousness. It shows us His love. It shows us His wisdom. And in seeing these together, in seeing these, we are moved to faith. We are moved to repentance. We are moved to love. This is not the only accomplishment of the cross, but it is one of the accomplishments of the cross. Christ comes to the cross as a prophet, revealing to us God. And when we see God, we love God. And when we love God, we follow Him. We walk humbly with Him in the way that He would have us to go. And so it is the cross that moves us to faith and to repentance. This is one of the reasons that we are commanded to meditate upon His death regularly. This is one of the reasons that we are commanded to keep the cross central. And one of the ways that we do this is by coming to this table, to this meal that we are about to eat. Why this sacrament? Why did, why did Jesus command His church to do this over and over again until He comes? Why do we eat regularly eat this meal together? It is so that we might remember the cross. It is so that we might remember His death. It is that we might remember the demonstration of His righteousness that leaves us hopeless. The demonstration of His love that gives us hope. And the demonstration of His wisdom that allows us to rest in His good providence. Awaiting the day when all that has been promised will be ours in full. And because the cross does this for us, that is why we call the message of the cross good news. Now, do you believe that? Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the demonstration of your righteousness, of your love and of your wisdom. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see it. As we come now to your table, Father. We ask that you would use this sacrament as a means of grace in our life to strengthen our faith, to renew our repentance, and to strengthen our love that we might walk to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.